Welcome to The Sword and the Trowel, a podcast of Founders Ministries. Founders Ministries exists for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of churches. I'm Jared Longshore. And I'm Tom Askell. Thanks for listening to The Sword and the Trowel today. Very excited because we have a guest with us. We do. We have Dr. Richard Barcellos from the left coast in the United States. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, Rich, we're glad to have you with us today. And uh, let me just see if I've got everything straight here. You... Uh, went to seminary at the Master Seminary, right? Yes, sir. Did you do an MDiv there? MDiv. Did you yep. do, Did you do any more studies at Masters? Um, no. Okay. Well, you get, you did a THM somewhere. Where'd you do that? Uh, that came from Whitfield okay. Theological Center. All right. And you also did a PhD, and you've written lots of books, and you've been a church planter. You're a seminary professor. You're a father of several kids. Is it four, five? Five. Five kids. Five. And you've got a grandchild on the way. So yes, sir. When is the grandchild due? Uh, third week of October, I believe. Oh, man. Well, that's going to be a glorious time for you. And um, it's good to have you on, on the program with us. We have a conference coming up and uh, man wish you could come and be with us in this conference and it's going to be on the law and the gospel that's a sweet spot for you mm-hmm. and conversations we've had for for many many years that conference is december the 5th through the 7th yep here in cape coral florida i, I can usually tell people look you ought to come to florida in the winter but it's kind of hard to say that to you because you have nice winters where you are right uh yes we do yeah so uh the name of the church is Grace Reformed Baptist Church, and where is it located? It's located in Palmdale, California, which is in uh, northern Los Angeles County, north and east of Los Angeles, about, I don't know, 60 miles or so. Okay, so that's great. And you are a native Californian, right? Yes, sir. Okay, well, very good. We're glad you're there. One of the great books Richard has published because you published a number of them but uh, one of my favorites is Getting the Garden Right uh, Adam's Work and God's Rest in Light of Christ you published this through Founders Press uh, 2017 and um, we're actually we've got this book here with us Richard and uh, boy it looks sharp and uh, full of good content we're actually going to be putting this on sale mm-hmm. for a week so when this podcast drops uh, make sure you go check out founders.org if you have not purchased getting the garden right uh boy essential reading when it comes to covenant theology hey and uh richard what was your original title for this book you mean the, the much superior title than the one you forced <laughs> me to use <laughs> well uh, you, yeah you might say that but go ahead let's, let's let, let people know what you wanted to call this great book well, I think it was getting the garden wrong. <laughs> it was getting the wah, garden wah, wrong, wah. which in essence was just getting the title wrong of the book. Uh, yeah. You know, you're all, it's one of the things that we're trying to help you with. You know, Jared, 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 we didn't talk about this before. We, we, I didn't think we were going in this direction. Can you help Tom out a little? Well, <laughs> here's the deal. Um, I wanted to call it I Come to the Garden Alone. <laughs> While the dew is still on the roses, and uh, that that wouldn't work. Yeah, but you know, um, we're just trying. I'm so I'm so positive, and uh, here at Founders, we try to be so positive. And Rich, you just have that negative bent to you. You know, it's getting the garden wrong, and we're trying to make you more bright and sunny and friendly and uh, accessible to people. We yeah, 
you want to turn me into a sweetie. Actually, I do prefer the title that we ended up agreeing upon. I think it's more reflective of, of the book. Yeah. You were, you were, I hate to say this, but Tom, you were right. That's right. Hey, R- Richard, give us kind of a quick summary. I mean, we've all read the book, but for those who are listening in, what's getting the garden right all about? Um, well, if you have the book there, you can read the subtitle because I think that's what it's all about. Adam's work and God's rest in light of Christ. Mm-hmm. And interwoven into it is a is an interaction with um, New Covenant theology and some aspects of what's now called progressive covenantalism. But uh, the reason why the title and the, and the subtitle were changed was because I think Tom is the one that figured this out. He said... You know, there's so much more to this book than just a polemical uh, interaction with others. There's there's a positive presentation, so let's make the you know title more positive. So I ground everything I say basically in scripture, of course, and I see um, the garden functioning as, in one sense, a, a paradigm for the rest of scripture in light mm-hmm. of the fall. And so, God proffering, God offering a quality of life to the federal head of humanity that he didn't attain to. And so that's the riddle that needs to be solved. Who's going to attain to this life, this glory um, that Adam failed to attain to? And, and the answer is our Lord Jesus, not us. Our Lord Jesus does it for us. And so in that sense, uh, uh, creation has much to do with eschatology. Um, excuse me. Yes. Um, yes, I, 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 you've read the book, of course, so you know, but in the book, I try to tease that out and show that, that, that the first words of scripture, uh, protology, words about first things, actually, with the, with the revelation of the covenant of works, actually become, becomes eschatological based on, the assumed obedience of Adam, according to the stipulations God revealed to him. So yes, um, the garden becomes eschatological. So we have uh, protology becomes eschatological with the revelation of the covenant of works, but we have a failed goal, a uh, a failed goal, a a goal that was Adam failed to Mm -hmm. attain, but the goal's still there to bring human nature to a permanent state that I think Scripture calls glory. Um, So that you have, uh, after the fall into sin, you have a huge question that needs to be answered. Like I said before, who's going to take us to glory? Or in the words of Sam Waldron, who's going to drive the glory train? Mm. And it ends up being the last Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the things that stuck out to me about this book, uh, Richard, was the systematic uh, arguments that you provide for the covenant of works. So that's very practical. I mean, a lot of guys that are probably reading this already have developed thoughts on the covenant of works. Um, but, you know, a, kind of a shorthand, you you write uh, very clearly in this section on the covenant of works. I'm looking at page 58 where you walk through the scriptural arguments for the covenant of works. And you talk about consider Moses, and you cite some texts, consider the prophet Isaiah, consider the prophet Hosea, uh, consider why it is denominated the covenant of works. And Adam was a type. 
Adam fell short of this glory that you were just referencing, and then consider the fact that Christ, upon his resurrection, entered into glory. And it was just, you've given me a shorthand for uh, conversations regarding the covenant of works and in the systematic way that you've addressed it in this work. So I uh, really appreciate it. Yeah, and, um, you know, I've had people say, why didn't you publish this book 20 years ago or 15 years ago or 10, even 10 years ago? And I said, I, I couldn't. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had all the ideas probably in my head someplace because it's based on a lot of reading and thinking through issues and comparing arguments. Um, but I hadn't put them all together, and I don't, I don't even think I could. Mm. Even ten years ago, it, it takes, you know, it takes a while to think through these things and and then put it all together and write in a fashion that's that's uh, compelling. Hopefully, at least for some, at least interesting for all. So yeah, it seems to be developing. Done it, done it. Oh, sorry about that. Yeah, I was. No, go ahead. You're, you're talking about you weren't able to write it then. These thoughts have kind of consolidated for you. Seems to mirror what's going on in kind of the broader Reformed Baptist world right now when it comes to covenant theology. This is something Founders is very interested in. If you go all the way back to Baptism of Disciples Alone that Fred Malone wrote uh, many years back, uh, The Law and the Gospel, which was recently republished by Founders Press, The Mystery of Christ, uh, which Sam Renahan has published, and then your work here, Getting the Garden Right. Um, the rediscovery of where the 17th century English Baptists were at on covenant theology is fascinating to me and to watch how much of it seems to be kind of developing on the internet, you know, and yet there's some books that are now um, being written and established. You seem to be one of the key players in this when I'm thinking about those who are in these conversations. So uh, for those who are listening here to the Sword in the Trial, can you just lay out kind of the development in this rediscovery of where 17th century English Baptists were at and how that contrasts with, say, the Presbyterian system of one covenant to administrations? Um, yeah, that's a good good question. And I actually have been asked that um, primarily for me. I'll just speak for myself. I met Dr. James Renahan in, um, boy, it was maybe 1997 or 1998. I want to say I was just out of high school. I was a really young man, but I wasn't. Um, <laughs> and, and one thing that Jim, I, I was immediately attracted to him because he was a scholar very accessible, and he, he, he had interest in things I was thinking through, and so uh, we started, um, you know, we met uh, probably at a couple conferences. He had moved to Southern California, uh, but we started emailing as well, and I don't know when it was that he sent me um, the manuscript that ended up being uh, Covenant Theology from Adam to Christ, Nehemiah Cox and John Owen. But at some point before, obviously, before we published it, I got it. I think it was early 2000s, 2001, 2002, I'm not sure. And I read the Nehemiah Cox section, and I'm going, this is scratching where I've been itching for a while, but I couldn't put it all together. And, of course, I I read the John Owen section as well, and I said, yes. Um, So for me, my um, journey um, started to crystallize to the point where I could actually articulate what I think I, I you know, believed uh, when I when I started editing that that document, and it it kind of blew me away. And I think the book was published in two thousand four, 
And I remember getting an email or a Facebook private message from somebody, I think it was a Southern Seminary student, about 2012 or so. And he said, uh, how long have you held to this, what men call 1689 federalism? I said, for since the late 90s, early 2000s, something like that, in a, in a very infantile form. I couldn't articulate it very well. And his comeback was, why have you, why have you held this as a secret until <laughs> or just recently? Uh, and I forgot my comeback. But my comeback now would be, well, I wanted the old guys to speak, and I, I couldn't put it all together myself. In a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a form that was convincing, so I didn't say much. Mm. And by the way, in a form that's convincing for me uh, means uh, that convinces me. I write to convince myself. That's why, that's why Tom, when I sent you the, the uh, manuscript, that you sent it back with all that red ink. <laughs> because I, I write to convince myself, and sometimes it's not very pleasing to the... To the to the reader, you know, yeah. get pedantic at times and things like that. So it was through Jim in, uh, Jim Renahan's influence um, that I started to think in these in these category of a of a um, promise, confirmation, or ratification kind of a mindset that I hadn't really put together before. Um, his influence and then reading the, the, the Nehemiah Cox stuff. It was in the confession chapter seven already, but I, I hadn't developed it in my own mind. Hey, uh, Rich, your first book in defense of the Decalogue, uh, when was that published? Uh, 1948, I think. <laughs> uh, oh, let's see yeah. here. I have a copy here. Yeah, I don't have it. 2001? Was it? Yes, yeah. that's 2001. Yes, 2001. Now, interesting about in defense of the Decalogue, it got picked on for promoting more classic covenant theology in the in the kind of the Pado Baptist kind of a uh, mode. Mm-hmm. It got picked on by various people as advocating the covenant of works and this, that, and the other. And I didn't touch the covenant of works in that right. in that book. Right. Reason is. I was still thinking through it. Not that I denied it, I affirmed it, but I couldn't yeah. speak publicly on it. So I didn't even touch that issue. And I didn't touch uh, the covenant of grace either, what that meant, how to argue for it, uh, promise in the Old Testament, historically ratified in the, in the sufferings and glory of our Savior. I, I didn't touch those things. But a couple of the book reviews that I read that I did. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know that the uh, a lot of our friends who um, would call themselves New Covenant theologians interacted with that book and really pressed points in that book that you know you, as you say, you weren't trying to make, but they were uh, showing that or trying to claim you were deficient in them. And it was really in the process of wanting to get that book back in print that getting the garden right came to exist. Is that a fair statement? Yes, and but there's a backstory to that. Jared, you want to hear it? Sure. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Here's the deal. Um, can I tell a backstory um, related to in defense of the Decalogue? Yeah, do that, and I'll fact check you. Okay. <laughs> so, so I, I I had some issues in the church I was pastoring about 
this very issue, New Covenant theology, actually connected to it, uh, but not organically connected to it, um, just in one guy's mind with hyperpreterism as well. So this guy was reading New Covenant theology and hyperpreterism at the same time, started to infiltrate our, our membership. So I thought, man, I better study this stuff. So I did, and I, I wrote a, a response just for him. And I, I think I sent it to Earl Blackburn. Somehow it ends up in Florida, <laughs> probably the internet. And I don't remember all the details, but I got a note or a phone call or an email or something from from Tom Askell and said, hey, beat this up. We'd be interested in publishing it. So I thought, oh, wow. So I wanted to send it out at some point to others for a potential endorsement. So I, I, I sent it to Ernie Riesinger. Uh, I have never met Ernie, Ernie, Ernie Riesinger. I'm sure I got his email from Tom. I could have sent it snail mail. I, I don't remember. You know what? Let, let, let me interrupt you because it's obvious you've never met Ernie because his last name's Reisinger. Reisinger, whatever. <laughs> There's a story behind that too, but go ahead. Okay, Reisinger. Um, I'll just call him Ernie. <laughs> So I sent this thing to Ernie. I, get, I, I go out jogging one day. I come back, and there's a message on my answering thing. So I press the button, and it's Ernie Reisinger. And I forgot what he said. It was all encouraging. Oh, I remember what he said. He said, Richard, thank you for your manuscript. I, I think it should be published. Uh, I, I'd love to write a, a, an endorsement for it, but I'm, I'm too old for that. Let, let, let somebody else do it. <laughs> And then I don't know how he got my U.S. mail address, but he sent me a check for $250. And on the memo, it said writing ministry. <laughs> and I thought, I have a writing ministry. What is, what's he talking about? <laughs> so I'm trying to beef the document up. All the original footnotes were actually to website articles. So I'm talking to Tom. Tom's so old, he's not going to remember this. But <laughs> I'm talking to Tom on the phone one day. And I'm telling him this story about this $250 check, and he's telling me you need to beef up the footnotes and, and buy, get the books that these articles are now published in and put the full bibliography and all that stuff. Yeah. And I said, I got to buy these books? He says, yeah, buy John's book, <laughs> book with Ernie's money. So that's how I bought uh, my first John Reisinger book. That's John Reisinger. It's John Reisinger. Okay. It's Ernie Reisinger. Okay. John and Ernie. Anyway, <laughs> so I, and that's a true story. I don't remember all, it it's the details are all right. But the substance of it was Tom Askell said, buy John's books. <laughs> with, with Ernie's money. With Ernie. So I, I did. Now, now, the backstory on the garden book was fast forward. It's, I don't know, 2010 or something like that, 9 or 10, and I get an email. I think it was from you, Tom. It was. Hey, wow. we're in second edition yeah we're interested in the second edition so i you know i'm i'm thinking through second edition and i said uh, i need a year or two whatever so oh, before that however i, I had oh. uh, contacted you multiple times about hey let's reprint this and you said no i, I want to interact with some of the critics and you know there are things i want to say a little differently and add more to it so we had that conversation for years and then, uh, then we moved to the second edition. I'm trying to my jujitsu move on you here. A second edition that will maybe speed things along. Yeah. Well, I, I had promised either on the phone or through the email. And at some point, 2013, 14, 15, I'm not sure. I think it was a Founders Southwest 
conference in Texas, um, somebody raised their hand. And so I said, yes, sir. And he stands up and he says something like this. I'm sure I'm embellishing it a little bit. Tom Askell wants to know when the second edition of the Intent <laughs> for the Decalogue is going to come out. <laughs> tell him tell him two years or something like that. So uh, I did come home after that with feeling threatened, you know, and uh, I started putting stuff together. And at some point, I, I might be getting the details all wrong here, but the sum and substance of what I'm saying is what happened as far as I can remember. I had this outline, this uh, table of contents. It had like 29 chapters. Mm. And I don't th- think I had gotten out of Genesis chapter 3 yet. And I had 29 <laughs> chapters. And, and I, st- I talked to Tom at some point. He said, you got to cut this thing down. I said, well, then, then I need to do two books or you know, somebody needs to do a second book. Um, he says too much material. It's going to be too much material, which I, and which I agreed with. So I thought, you know, I, I just I need to stay in the garden and develop some of those themes that are in there, in light of subsequent scripture, and so that's what I did. But in my mind, I'm saying this is not the this is not the book. Uh, this kind of sets up uh, a redemptive history, more traditional covenant theology book in the future, and maybe sometime I can write it. But now I know. I don't have to write it. Sam Renahan did. So he saved me a lot of work. Yeah, I think that's substantially right. I do remember enlisting other people to try to call you out in public forums uh, to see if we couldn't encourage uh, getting this book done. So, uh, But it's done now, and it's great. Man, it's had a great life. And I, I find that some of our New Covenant friends appreciate this, and I believe they're going to appreciate Sam's book too. See, see if you agree with this. I think some of the concerns that the best of our brothers in that camp have been raising are legitimate concerns, and they haven't felt like some of the uh, covenant theology arguments that have been employed um, over the last few decades have sufficiently addressed their concerns, largely like the newness, the legitimate newness of the new covenant. And uh, you, know, you and Sam do that. But, I mean, what do you think about that? That's my assessment. Yeah, I think it's. I, I think that's it's, uh, true. Maybe not with all of them, because I, I've read some books that that uh, indicate to me that um, some of the guys need to do more reading historical theology. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't understand some things um, because they hadn't interacted with, hadn't read them. Um, but other guys had, and probably. You know, I would say, well, you need to read more. I think a lot of times in older books, um, they assume a lot more than, than than we like to assume in our day, probably because of uh, the presence of an, an effect of dispensationalism in our thinking mm-hmm. and, and, a, and a form of biblicism where if a term or a phrase isn't in the Bible, we're gonna we're not going to use it, kind of thing. Which you know everybody's an inconsistent biblicist in one sense. So, um, but I think those kinds of things, which gets us back to hermeneutics, um, we we have in our day have assumed hermeneutic that that requires um, things of texts and doctrinal formulations that the old guys didn't didn't require. Right. They thought in different hermeneutical categories than we do, and that's why I address hermeneutics relatively early in the book because 
because um, I remember a statement by a seminary professor of mine, my, my favorite seminary professor back at Masters. He said the differences between covenant theology and dispensationalism at bottom are hermeneutical, are hermeneutical issues. And that stuck with me, and the more I read, the more I realized that that's it. We're looking at the same text, but we're filtering it through a, an interpretive grid that differs. Mm. So we got to go back to the interpretive grid, the principles of hermeneutics, and and that got me, um, that really crystallized, actually, when I did my doctoral work, my dissertation on John Owen and, and Gerhardus Voss, uh, I just over and over and over, I thought, you know, these guys think about texts through different lenses than we do, and it's the effect, not just dispensationalism, but I also think it's the effect of the Enlightenment, a, a rationalizing tendency. Uh, meaning is in the eye and mind of the human author alone, mm. and it discounts at some point, uh, you at least restrict some sort of, uh, you know, the, the scholars call it census, or fuller, fuller sense, in light of the fact that God is doing things uh, that are narrated by men in Scripture, but the thing done, the act of, let's say, creation, or uh, the, the nature of the relationship between Adam in the garden and his creator, uh, isn't teased out in the first recorded narration of those divine acts. It awaits subsequent scripture to indicate to us that there's more going on in the divine act that was recorded, in this case, by Moses, than Moses himself records for us. Mm. So, so the divine acts are pregnant with meaning that aren't necessarily initially recorded. That is, the meaning isn't necessarily always recorded the first time uh, a human penman writes about the divine act. So God can tell us more about the previous act in subsequent revelation. That's why I have that saying, it's in the book, subsequent revelation makes explicit what is implicit in antecedent revelation. And the revelation isn't necessarily, um, the antecedent revelation is, first of all, the divine act of God, in this case, creation and covenant of works. And secondly, um, the recording of the act. There could be more to it then first meets the eye. And I think that's the, that's the way the older guys looked at Scripture, and I had to relearn that part of hermeneutics to understand the doctrine of the covenant works and other things. Richard, if a guy wanted to kind of enter into those hermeneutical issues and learn some of the principles that you've just set forth, that you discovered, what books would you point a guy to? Well, that's a very good question. Um, I don't know if there's just one book um, that I would point somebody to. Uh, there, there is a contemporary book that is in, in large measure, measure heading in the right direction. And that's a book by Craig Carter. Um, and I'm trying to think through what the title is. Interpreting Scripture with a Great Tradition. Or with, yes, with the great tradition, Baker published it, I think, a year or so ago. Some of my friends really liked it, and some of my friends didn't like it. 
And I think it's because there are some times when Craig, um, he assumes a lot in terms and phrases that he uses and he doesn't prove it. Um, but, you know, you got to be, you should be gracious toward authors. They can't say everything. You know, I'm sure subsequent works are going to be more detailed. But he helps getting us, uh, getting our minds back into this letter spirit um, hermeneutic that was assumed when our confession was written, um, which goes all the way back to at least Augustine. I, I think it goes back to the, the uh, canonical writers of the Holy Scriptures itself. But, um, and that gets us into um, literal interpretation versus literalistic. That's the way I distinguish in, in my lectures. Literal um, doesn't deny uh, figurative. The figure is in the letter. But we don't know that until we read it in context and we realize, oh, this is a metaphor. Or this is a string of metaphors. These are figures of speech depicting something real, but in in uh, or in in language that's figurative. But it's in the letter itself. It's not a separate type of of um, of uh, literature. You have literal scripture, and then you have uh, spiritual scripture. That's the way I used to think. You have the scriptures, and the scriptures are presented to us in straight narrative or prose, and then there are some times when scripture uses figures of speech to depict uh, uh, some sort of reality without using the exact words of that reality. For instance, uh, Genesis 3.15 is, a, is, a, is the promise of the skull-crushing seed of the woman. I think it's the first gospel promise. Um, Benjamin Keach argues that Genesis 3.15 has a string of, of, of metaphors put together. And I don't know if he uses the language extended metaphor, but Calvin does. I don't know if he uses this with reference to Genesis 3.15. Calvin uses the language extended metaphor equals allegory. Now, that's pretty interesting. You can see Benjamin Keach believed that there was genre, a type of literature in the Bible, identified as allegory, a string or a, an extended metaphor. And he identified Genesis 3.15 as one of those, which is, we I didn't used to think in that category. I would think allegory mm -hmm. is wild spiritualizing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But he's, he uses it in a, in a, in a different way. It's pre-critical. You know, it's before the critical era, before the Enlightenment. And um, for me, I had to get the terms, the definitions, the categories straight in my mind before I understood those kinds of things. So now I can say if, if, a, if an allegory is an extended metaphor, then that genre is in the Bible. I, by the way, I don't use the word allegory when I preach, by the way. Uh, it's only in lectures when you're you know, talking to students, and I encourage them, don't say this is allegorical. <laughs> because, you know, all the worst kinds of things come into people's minds. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so, 
So Richard, so on the hermeneutical level, when you're getting down to the foundation, when you're trying to think through 1689 federalism, covenant theology, you'd say Craig Carter, you mentioned, and then this letter spirit hermeneutic, literal versus literalistic. Uh, we only have a couple minutes left, but give us just a rundown, little, a handful of books having dealt with the hermeneutical issues uh, when it comes to 1689 federalism, this thing you've kind of discovered late 90s through Jim Renahan, it's your book is certainly uh, uh, a key book to read. Give us the other kind of short list uh, with a guy wanting to get into 1689 federalism. Yeah, well, Sam Renahan's from, uh, what is it, from shadow to reality? From shadow to substance. Mm-hmm. Shadow to substance, sorry about that, thank you. Um, I, would, I would highly recommend that. Of course, Sam's new book by... By uh, by founders, I I would recommend that as well. There's also another book called the the Letter and Spirit of Biblical Interpretation. Uh, Baker published it. It's a recent book. The subtitle is From the Early Church to Modern Practice. The author is Keith Stanglin. He studied under uh, Richard Muller. I think he's a classical Arminian. It doesn't come out in the book, but that'll help get into the older categories of of thinking. I also uh, think that um, Patrick Fairbairn has a lot of good stuff in his opening scripture and in his various other books. Another book on hermeneutics I really think has a lot of helpful stuff. It's Him We Proclaim by Dennis Johnson. Uh, and the subtitle of that is Preaching Christ from the Scriptures. There's a lot of gold in there on hermeneutical issues. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, interpreting the scripture in light of scripture, and those are, those are just a few books that I think are helpful. Very good. So, are you working on anything Augustine, right now? Augustine, Augustine on Christian doctrine—that's okay. an important book too. All right. So, are you working on anything else right now uh, by way of publication? Um, uh, as far as writing yeah, or editing, writing, writing. Yeah, yeah. I have a, a manuscript. Um, it has a good title. I'll help you with it. Remember the title. <laughs> yeah. Well, somebody helped me with it because they changed the title. That seems to be and a it, pattern. It does, yes. Um, it's called Trinity and Creation. Uh, a confession, a a confessional and biblical account. I think it's the uh, subtitle. And what I what I do is I expound. Uh, the second London chapter four, paragraph one, uh, on, on the doctrine of Trinitarian creation. Mm. Uh, of course I deal with hermeneutics there as well. It's doctrine of God and creation kind of stuff. So it's got some historical and then some biblical exegesis and, and, um, that's been at, at a publisher since I think February. I have another book in, in the oven. It's been in the oven for, five or six years and someday I'll get back to it but have a lot of other projects that I'm involved with and either contributing to or editing so it slows things down a bit yeah someday someday I'd like to get published a, a, a practical exposition of Hercules Collins and Orthodox Catechism I have a lot of notes on that including his, like including his question on baptism which is uh, what of three course. pages long <laughs> on the answer. <laughs> yeah, 
Well, that's a book right there, isn't it? It is. You have to uh, let founders know about that when you get around to that orthodox catechism. So, Richard, thanks so much for joining us here on The Sword and the Trout. It's been very uh, helpful, beneficial to hear a little bit about your own life and then dealing with some of these issues related to 1689 federalism and the hermeneutics that uh, are underneath of all of that. So it's been great having you with us. Thanks again for listening to The Sword and the Trial today. Uh, do check out founders.org and that upcoming conference on the law and the gospel, December 5th through the 7th. Uh, we look forward to seeing you there. Thanks, Richard. All right. Thank you.